This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Extreme weather punched up by global warming. It is here. Beyond damage and death, the cost of coping has derailed plans for sustainable development, things like clean water, health care, climate-resilient cities for the world. We are sinking in heavy weather. In our second half hour, hear Lauren Stewart, scientific officer for the World Meteorological Organization. She just reported in on the first half of 2023. We will toss in a bit of James Hansen and news from Germany. But first, elders are up to 75% of climate-driven fatalities in developed world climate disasters. Senior expert Danielle Aragoni on her new book, Climate Resilience for an Aging Nation. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. As extreme rain, fires, heat, storms become the new normal, the supposedly advanced civilization cannot protect their elders properly. From Hurricane Katrina to California fires, 70 to 85 percent of fatalities were adults over the age of 65. This lack of climate readiness comes as America approaches another tipping point. In 10 years, the country will have more people over 65 than kids under 18. Japan is already there. Danielle Argoni has 25 years' experience in public planning. She worked with nonprofit groups like ARP, the American Association of Retired Persons. She carried leadership roles in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Danielle is currently Managing Director of Policy and Solutions at National Housing Trust. With her master's degree in city and regional planning from Cornell, Argoni just published her prescription to keep more citizens alive during climate disasters. Listeners in every country need to consider this book, Climate Resilience for an Aging Nation. Living in D.C., but always in California, Daniel Aragoni, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. In Europe's most deadly heat wave of 2003, tens of thousands of French seniors died while their families were away on summer vacation. What is the situation for older adults in the United States as record long-lasting heat settles in? Well, I think that older adults in the U.S. face a predicament as we encounter more hotter days, um, seasons that last longer, particularly in regions that are unaccustomed to heat. So I'm thinking specifically of the Pacific Northwest in 2021 and 2022, where a heat dome settled over the top of the region and uh, took the lives of more than a 1,000 people many of whom are older adults. And I think that the reason for that is the particular risk that older adults face with heat in particular is due to a few different things. One, I think there is the the reality that very many older adults in the U.S., um, perhaps similar to France, live on their own. So I think there's a presumption sometimes that older adults are are living in, in congregate settings and institutional settings like nursing homes. The reality is that that's only about 4% of older adults. About 96% live in the community, and among those, around 30% live by themselves. So what that means is that when someone is encountering the effects of heat-related illnesses, those symptoms might go unnoticed. That could be a lack of balance. It could be disorientation. It could be any other sort of symptoms that that express or that demonstrate um, that, that a heat illness has set in, but there's no one there to notice it. There's no one there to take action. The notion that older adults are, are always going to be cared for by someone nearby is a flawed assumption because in reality there's a lot of people who, who do not have the benefit of someone nearby to care for them. 
I think another reason that that particularly implicates older adults in the U.S. is because of what that means for utility costs. So assuming that a home has an air conditioning, and what we found in the Pacific Northwest is that a lot of homes were not designed with air conditioning at all because they had never historically needed that. Um, Summers didn't get hot enough to warrant it. Assuming there is air conditioning in place, the cost of operating that air conditioning can really be a burden, particularly for older adults who live out or below the poverty line, as is the case for about 15% of older adults in the U.S. And I think when you layer those costs on top of housing costs that are already straining the budgets for many older adults, it gets older adults into a situation where they're really having to make trade-offs between how much they can afford to run the air conditioner and how much heat they can discomfort they can withstand. Um, And that's a pretty perilous situation to be in, in part because uh, we know that once those symptoms have set in, once the effects of heat illness have, have kicked in, and if there is no one nearby to respond to those, it can oftentimes lead to death tragically. What we know is that 12,000 people die each year in the U.S. from heat-related illnesses, and of those, 80% are people over 60 um, for some of the reasons I just discussed. And climate change is much more than heat. Why do so many seniors die during big storms like Hurricane Ian that hit the Gulf Coast of Florida in September 2022? Yeah, that that too is another, I think, tragic illustration of of how older adults do oftentimes display a particular vulnerability that may not be understood by planners, may not be present in in the broader population or with younger people. Uh, In particular, I think mobility is a big challenge uh, that that implicated people's ability to respond appropriately in in Hurricane Ian. So what we know of older adults is that it's a very diverse group. Um, There's, you know, some older adults are very financially resilient, um, very physically fit and in great health and have lots of support around them. There are others who are not. And in general, what we know of older adults is about 20% of older adults don't drive and about 40% have ambulatory limitations. So both of those are mobility challenges, right? Mobility challenges within the home and the community and mobility challenges in terms of being able to drive yourself someplace, particularly to evacuate. So when you layer those two realities onto the, the sort of plight of people who live in the region affected by Hurricane Ian and what we've seen in time and time again, including um, in the Maui wildfires, is that there's really not enough planning that has gone into the needs of people who don't drive, who no longer drive. And again, I'll I'll say one in five people over 65 don't drive anymore or have other sort of ambulatory limitations. So that lack of ability to frankly just get out of harm's way is a big part of why events like Hurricane Ian or the Maui wildfires are truly devastating for, for some older adults. And the suffering for older adults continues long after the smoke settles or the winds die down. You write, quote, impacts associated with disasters tend to have a long tail, manifesting months or years after the event in the form of effects on both physical and mental health. Please take a minute or two to explain those impacts on older adults beyond the death toll. Yeah, what we've seen in the research is that, first of all, there there's great research that's been done to illustrate the impact of disasters on, for example, people who have recurring medical treatments. So imagine cancer treatments or uh, dialysis, um, treatments that are required on a regular and sustained basis to address an underlying medical condition. We know that interruption of those treatments by a disaster of the kind that we've described, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or Ian, it results in, in a higher death rate for those who live in the disaster-affected area than for those who were not 
confronted with a disaster. It also takes a real toll, I think, whether you know, you're able to, to uh, maintain your, your life in the place where you've been living or whether you need to evacuate. That is a real toll uh, on people sort of from a mental health perspective. There's a real trauma that's involved in living through an event of magnitude of the kinds that we've, we've talked about, going back to Superstorm Sandy or Hurricane Katrina, where it's this massive disruption in people's lives in terms of how they access care, how they access support. Um, that takes a toll as well. And um, there was a study, I believe, of, of Superstorm Sandy older uh, affected adult, older adults that showed even as far as three years after the event that there were negative mental health effects from that. So whether it's interruption of treatment, whether it's sort of prolonged mental health impacts, or whether it's, frankly, just the effects physically in a home that live beyond the disaster itself, so homes that were damaged in a disaster that have not been able to be uh, fixed or rehabilitated, or homes that suffer from repeat flooding, often result in conditions that exacerbate existing health conditions. So that it's things like black mold in homes that have a really incredibly disproportionate effect on older adults who are already living with respiratory disease. And I also recall high senior heat deaths during the Chicago heat wave of 1995. Many of the fatalities were people of color. And in some areas, seniors living in high crime areas were afraid to open their windows or doors, and so they died in their overheated homes. There are socioeconomic factors, too, in this picture of high climate risk for older adults, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the tragedy here is that all of these, these risks that are associated with age and with climate change sit on top of what we already know are inequitable health outcomes that are uh, differentiated by race. We know that life expectancy varies widely depending on where you live, what zip code you live in, because that is tied to your access to health care, to healthy food, to regular care. All of these risks that we're talking about with climate and with age just exacerbate the underlying, frankly, inequities that already exist within our healthcare system. So the reason that's particularly, I think, challenging and troubling and, frankly, should be a call to action is because we know that older adults, non-white older adults, the rate of growth among that population is faster than uh, the rate of growth for white older adults. We are going to become a more diverse cohort of older adults over time, more linguistically, more racially, more ethnically diverse um, as the years go on. And I think solving, therefore, solving for those inequities that underlie some of the predicaments that that older adults are going to find themselves in becomes part of addressing the climate challenge. Well, another small factor I would add to your book's catalog of seniors' dangers, surveys show most climate deniers are older white men. We have a major American political party with uh, some pretty old leaders against climate action and uh, against health care, it seems. The state of Florida tried to prevent officials even saying the words climate change. Yeah, that's right. So why prepare or spend tax dollars on climate readiness when you think it's all a hoax? Well, I think, you know, whether we call it climate change or not, I think there is a recognition that risk is um, increasing. And I think if it does, if people aren't compelled by the, the scientists, telling the story, maybe they'll be compelled by their pocketbook. And certainly the insurance industry has uh, accounted for this risk. That is going to be reflected in higher insurance premiums for a homeowner's insurance in some parts of the country, certainly for flood insurance um, in affected regions. And if that's not a wake-up call to people, I don't know what is. We know that, you know, because we have new data now about future projections, 
the, the flood risk profile for many communities has changed, which is going to result in very steep increases in their premiums. FEMA is going to be phasing those in, but we see effects in Florida, for example, where someone I believe was paying, you know, $1,000 a year that, or maybe $800 a year, uh, that's going to go up to over $4,000 a year. When those kinds of effects start to happen, you can deny climate all you want, but the reality is that it's going to become more costly, more, more difficult to live in risk-prone areas. So for all those reasons and more, not to mention the fact that we are collectively aging as a country, um, that is a trend that we cannot reverse. There's no way that we could stem that tide. Um, we have to plan for the day when we're going to be comprised of more older adults and really be honest and clear-eyed about the risks that that uh, means both for them and the communities in which they live. For older Americans, climate impacts are just part of a poly crisis. Uh, we've got inflation and high food prices, but harsh weather on steroids arrives as older adults are struggling to find affordable shelter that could save their lives. We see TV news footage uh, with mobile homes used by so many seniors blown away or washed downstream. Talk to us about the seniors' housing crisis during climate change. Yeah, I'm particularly troubled and uh, frankly distressed over the the conditions around housing for older adults. We know that, um, and there's a report that's going to be coming out just very shortly at the end of November from the Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies that in past years has shown that the housing cost burden among older adults has has risen to the highest level ever. And that means older adults are paying more than 30% of their income for housing alone. So in their last report a few years ago, that had reached an all-time high. Um, I fully expect that what we've seen with rent prices in the past few years and what we know of demographic change in the past few years, that number is going to go higher still. Already we know that I believe there's something like 14 million households that are headed by someone 75 or older. Of those, 45% say that they are paying more than a third of their income on housing. Among renters, it's three-quarters of, rent, of older renters are paying more than 30% of their housing. So that's a lot of numbers, but what it really means is that older adults are strained financially to cover the cost of housing. And when you have that number of older adults strained at that level and the sort of national housing crisis that we find ourselves in, we are seeing already that whether it's seeking out mobile homes or manufactured homes as, as a solution, um, that increasingly is... In some cases, it remains a viable option. In other places, it doesn't, because what we've seen in some examples is when disaster or when private investors swoop into an area and buy up or buy up uh, manufactured home communities, or in the case of disaster, burn through them, rendering them no longer livable, that those opportunities are not being restored, that you therefore lose that affordable housing option in many communities. So manufactured housing essentially gets taken off the table as an affordable housing solution. For all those reasons and more, we're seeing an uptick, frankly, in the share of older adults that are unhoused. And uh, one of the largest, you know, sectors now of of people who are unhoused is people over 50. I believe more than 50% of our unhoused population is, is people over 50. And that's fully expected to grow when you think about the, the, the housing cost burden that we're asking older adults to endure Unlike other ages, it's not that easy to go out and get another job, a second job, a third job to to make ends meet. Not that we wish wish that on anyone, but we know that that's particularly unrealistic for many older adults. They simply can't close the gap on uh, what they can afford to pay and what rents are. And I think that that bodes a lot of 
poor outcomes for a lot of people if we're not able to uh, bring greater focus to that challenge. Well, the other tough problem you raise is more people live longer, the number of cognitively challenged seniors becomes staggering. We have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and a whole lot of cognitive illnesses harming millions of people. Uh, heat itself lowers cognitive ability when you're going through it. Talk to us about how all that impacts older people's responses and the need to plan for confused people during emergencies. Absolutely. It, it, I was stunned, frankly, to learn in my research that one in nine people over 65 live with dementia. And when you think about what that means on a daily basis, of course, what we know of people you know, suffering from dementia is that routine and predictability and, and the ability to predict what is going to come it becomes very important, that maintaining a sense of, of normalcy and, and predictability and familiarity becomes very important for people lest they become more disoriented. Well, when you're talking about a disaster situation, a duress situation, all of that goes out the window. People who might be relocated to a shelter, we've heard stories of people wandering from that location. That's already a risk with people who live with dementia. Going back into areas that where they find themselves at greatest harm. And, and frankly, those who, who live with dementia in their own homes may be ill-equipped, may be unable to, to, to frankly reconcile the news that they're receiving about the risks that are coming and then take action appropriately. That means more pressure than on caregivers, more pressure than on on emergency responders to sort of account for those challenges. And again, I think it's just one of those blind spots that we have as, as planners, frankly, when we think about, you know, community resilience and what that looks like and how people will logically respond in the face of disaster. It, we fail to account for the fact that Dementia interferes with that. Dementia presents a real risk to be able to clearly assess risk that you face and take action based on that. I have heard of some situations where uh, devices can be um, uh, employed that help trace people, that can help locate people should they wander. But, you know, shelters themselves and sheltering plans themselves need to account for the risk of people wandering um, who, who live with dementia, as well as other um, difficulties that their, their caregivers are going to be concerned about. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Danielle Aragoni, author of the new book, Climate Resilience for an Aging Nation. Superstorm Sandy was a wake-up call for New York, and there are a lot of older adults living there. Daniel, from a resilience perspective, what came out of that? Well, I, I applaud um, many of the folks involved in the uh, Superstorm Sandy recovery, um, in part because it was, I think, really a wake-up call for our country in terms of just the, the sheer magnitude of damage and what that catalyzed in terms of a different approach going forward. I'll give a lot of credit to the New York Academy of Medicine, who back in 2014 developed a report to really try and understand what it was that occurred during Superstorm Sandy and how older adults fared during that disaster. And some of the recommendations that they came up with really hold true today. And it speaks to some of, I think, some core tenets that remain important in the form of things like better communication systems. How can we ensure that, that people are informed in ways that they will hear and access so that they can take appropriate action? It encouraged, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going off memory here, it encouraged local leaders to, to put in place better 
planning efforts specifically around um, mobility and, and, and access to, to safe shelters. So a lot of good thinking went into that back in 2014. When I circled back with New York Academy of Medicine um, in the writing of the book, it was clear to me and I think clear to them that not all of those recommendations had been implemented in the way they envisioned, in part because there wasn't really an accountability structure in place. It really wasn't any one entity's job to ensure that these recommendations were, were brought to the fore, in part because a lot of the way in which we plan for resilience is done in kind of a siloed fashion. So you have, you know, the Department of Transportation making decisions about uh, transit and paratransit. You have the Department of Aging making decisions about in-home services and home and community-based services. You have the Department of Emergency Management making decisions about emergency response. I think that there's an opportunity for New York, particularly as they move ahead with, with two plans that they are seeking to implement, one of which is a, a, you know, a commitment to become an age-friendly state, and, and that is leading uh, to what is called a master plan for aging that the state is developing now, which my hope is that they really look back to that report in 2014 and bring some of those recommendations back to the fore because it's an opportunity to, to assign those tasks to the right state agencies the other thing that New York is doing is seeking to really be a leader on climate. And I think the degree to which those same recommendations can help drive how they uh, move their climate agenda ahead can be really important. Those are, you know, some of the ways in which they could do that could be um, by prioritizing the, you know, electrification and use of renewable energy in places where older adults live so that you're, you're building in the infrastructure in the building, particularly in, in place in multifamily buildings where there happens to be a high number of older adults. If you can incorporate renewable energy into those buildings and provide backup storage, then you've eliminated some of the concern that emerged from Sandy, which was the power goes down and people can't access the services or the equipment that they need to remain safe in their home. So again, you know, by weaving some of those lessons in from Superstorm Sandy into the climate plan at the state level and the age-friendly master plan, I think both of those are an opportunity to really build on what was learned during uh, Superstorm Sandy. Talk to us about the ongoing role of community-based organizations when it comes to seniors and climate disasters. Yeah, the, the importance of community-based organizations cannot be overstated. I think that we see time and time again that they – you know, fill in the spaces that are left by public entities who either are unable to provide the level of service that is needed because of um, funding or because of capacity or because of what they've been charged to do. So community-based organizations, I think, are, are really incredibly important. We, I've heard, you know, and read stories about how community-based organizations in Puerto Rico in particular really were the backbone of the recovery effort, and they played critical roles in delivering food and water and even helping with things like land title so that uh, affected owners, particularly older adults, could get the kind of federal relief that they needed to rebuild. And that was all led at the community level. I think uh, here in the continental U.S., community-based organizations play an equally important role in terms of you know, I think of things like, you know, delivering meals on wheels support to households. Those are, you know, for people who live alone, the meals on wheels uh, volunteer or staff person might be the only person that that person is in contact with in the course of a week or more. And so I think utilizing community-based systems like that 
to get information and, and support out to older adults is critically important. We saw this happen in Portland, Oregon, where they used some of the infrastructure of community-based organizations that have been propped up during COVID and repurposed that to get portable heat pumps, meaning air conditioners, into older adults' homes on the heels of the first heat wave in 2021 so that they didn't see the rates of death in 2022 that, that had occurred the prior year. And, and that was done because community-based organizations have the relationships with the older adults. They're a trusted source in many cases. They can be nimble and, and be very agile in how they provide support. I'll give one more example, which I think is a really inspiring one, which is from New Orleans, where a group called Together New Orleans is deploying community lighthouses throughout the city. And they came to that realization because they realized that as they transition from a, a response approach that no longer requires people evacuate because they saw the challenges of evacuation, particularly for older adults, now they've transitioned to an approach that helps people remain sheltered in place while the power goes out, which is a very common occurrence now post-hurricane. What they saw was that this community-based organization saw that they needed to be able to provide very decentralized, very neighborhood-accessible resilience hubs or what they're called community lighthouses so that older adults and other residents can easily access these centers, get access to electricity, to food, to water, to basic care, and that was only possible when they partnered with community-based organizations like Houses of Worship, like health centers. Um, and so because of that, they, they are ultimately building towards a network of more than a dozen, maybe even more than a couple dozen of these community lighthouses scattered throughout the city that are navigable by older adults who live in the community um, so that they can get the support that they needed. Again, that's only the, the response, a response like that can really best be done by a community organization. Of course, it requires a lot of public support and philanthropic support to make it possible, but they're a critical part of the puzzle. I also like the idea in your book about joint volunteer information centers. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, that was the Portland model that they developed um, during COVID. So that was a, a model that they uh, developed. Um, they called it JVIC. And what they did was harness a whole bunch of these community-based organizations, some of which were very um, sort of culturally specific. So a group that uh, could best serve the Latino residents of, of and Spanish-speaking residents of Portland, another that served the Asian population in the region. And by by cultivating relationships with groups that were very well understood and trusted by members of those groups, they were able to, again, deploy resources during COVID in the form of food or, you know, uh, other kind of support mechanisms that, w- that were needed to be brought to people's homes during COVID. They could repurpose that same JVIC infrastructure in some ways, even though I think they called it something different by that time, in order to, to get these heat pumps out into people's homes. So I think it's a really interesting model that Portland piloted. Um, I think they were unable to carry it forward on a long-term basis because of funding shifts. But there's a lesson in there about, you know, creating that network of community-based organizations, training them to be able to deliver services and support, and then repurposing that infrastructure to meet climate-related needs. If we really care about older people, your book recommends fundamental changes to a wide range of institutions. It's a big project. And right now, more climate legislation in Washington seems unlikely. State action is possible in some places, but community action better in others. Where would you recommend our listeners put their activism to save older people during the climate crisis? 
I think at the local level is a really important place to start. And in my mind, what that looks like is, first of all, at the, at the most hyper-local level, take, taking a clear assessment of your own risks and that of people in your family and your community. What are the risks that we face going forward? What are the things that we need to do to prepare for that? And, and that might mean thinking about transition to renewable energy and battery storage or thinking about getting air purifiers if you live in a place that's going to have more wildfire risk because you live in a home with someone who's got respiratory disease. But I would also say it's, it's pressing your local leaders to ensure that when they're making decisions about housing or transportation investments or um, services, that they're really at least asking the question, how will this reduce risk for older adults in the face of our climate future? I do think that there's opportunities across the spectrum for local leaders to to make decisions that better serve the needs of older adults. There's also uh, a lot of opportunity, I think, with utilities, which sit outside of local government. But utilities can be brought more into the into the discussion here in terms of the important role that they play. You know, they could do things like encourage homes to be more energy efficient, um, provide support or, or rebates to bring down the cost of utilities so that that older adult in living in that home doesn't have to worry about what this means for my utility bill as they weigh whether or not they should turn on the heating or the cooling. So there are a diverse array of of actors and players, I think, that can be involved. And I I would hate to sort of leave out the opportunity to to speak to the healthcare industry. I think the healthcare industry, you know, each person with their own doctor, and I think the medical industry more broadly, should be talking about climate change more proactively with older adults and specifically talking about how the risks that they face are going to be uh, intersecting with the chronic conditions that they live with. The National Council on Aging reports that 80% of older adults live with two or more chronic conditions. And I think it's worth taking a moment to talk with one's doctor about how those conditions intersect with the climate risks to come. Yes, in 2017, I did a show called Has Your Doctor Told You? And my guest was Colorado emergency physician Jay Lemery with his book Enviromedics. So there is definitely a conversation that should be happening that isn't yet. From the National Housing Trust, we've been speaking with longtime social planner and senior advocate Danielle Aragoni. Her new book, Climate Resilience for an Aging Nation, is both a diagnosis and a handbook for action. You can find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org and check out www.resilienceforanagingnation.com. Daniel, thank you for helping us out on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be here. I'm Alex Smith reporting. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Superstorms, firestorms, extreme everything. Who can keep up? The United Nations weather team has been running hard. The World Meteorological Organization once was slow on climate change way back, no more. Last year, they led the big United Science report, warning the warming world was heading into uncharted territory of destruction. Sure enough, all that arrived big time this year in 2023. For our guide, we reached Lauren Stewart. With her master's degree in climate change and international development, 
Stewart has been on the ground in Nepal and in Congress for Oxfam America. Now she is scientific officer for the WMO. From Geneva, Lauren Stewart, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. In May 2023, the World Meteorological Organization predicted global temperatures would reach new records in the next five years. But did your team expect the mind-boggling, record-smashing heat all over the Northern Hemisphere so soon this summer? You know, I don't think anyone expected what we saw this summer. Truly record-breaking temperatures uh, across the globe. And not only record-breaking temperatures, but also sea surface temperatures were record-breaking as well. Um, and it caught all of us off guard. But with the new El Nino uh, currently happening, uh, we can expect temperatures to continue to increase. And this could be one of the warmest years on record again. Well, right, as July boiled over in stupefying temperatures, U.N. Secretary General Guterres said climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The WMO certified July 2023 as the hottest in history ever. What about August, September, and 2023 in general? We continue to see record-breaking temperatures uh, throughout the summer, not just in July. September, again, was an incredibly warm month. And like I said, because we have El Nino currently in place, which makes the equatorial Pacific sea surface temperatures warmer, we can expect to see uh, warming temperatures across the globe as a result of that. And likely we won't feel the, the real impacts of that El Nino for a few more months. So it's possible that 2024 could be even warmer than what we're seeing now. Is most of the WMO work done in centers around the world or is it at Geneva headquarters? How does it work and were you in overdrive for this year's record-breaking weather? That's a really great question because a lot of people are surprised to find out that at the World Meteorological Organization, we don't actually do science and research ourselves. The United Nations, um, any UN agency, we're responsible for really facilitating international collaboration. And so at the WMO, what we do is we bring some of the world's best weather and climate and water scientists together to collaborate and really try to address some of these pressing issues around climate change and extreme weather events. So we play a really unique role, but I think it surprises quite a few people. Right. We picture massive desks of people all watching over screens, and in fact, you're uh, collating what other scientists are doing. Is that the right picture? Yeah, you can think of it that way. We bring people together. We, we help enable um, international collaboration. Um, you know, for example, we have several research programs at the World Meteorological Organization, and we don't do the research ourselves, but we help coordinate all of those researchers across the world to tackle some of these really big research questions about weather and climate. It's not just the heat this year. In the last week of October 2023, strong storms raked the planet. Listeners in the UK and Ireland were buffeted. Three amazing cyclones hit Mexico, Yemen, and Vanuatu all at the same time. Is it fair to say the world storm system is destabilized? 
Well, these storms, I mean, they're increasing in frequency and intensity, and that's something that we have expected as a result of uh, climate change and also natural variability. But I think it just, you know, emphasizes the real need for weather science and climate science to keep an eye on these extreme events. And this also emphasizes the, the need of early warning systems because we have so many of these extreme tropical cyclones, for example, like you were mentioning, and it's crucial to get those early warnings out to the public so that they can respond in time to uh, take actions to, to mitigate any harm. And they have to be fast warming systems because Hurricane Otis spun up from a tropical storm to the strongest possible Cat 5 hurricane in about 12 hours. It's the biggest hurricane ever recorded in the eastern Pacific, uh, and it slammed into Acapulco. So I wonder, what can we do? I mean, we can put up sirens, uh, we can make buildings uh, more resistant to what? What can we do? That's a really good point. You know, some of these storms, um, like we just saw with Otis, I mean, as a meteorologist myself, even that surprised me, um, how quickly that storm developed and strengthened and then made landfall. But that just emphasizes the need to continue our research efforts and to better understanding how rapid intensification occurs and improving our models so that we have a better idea of how strong these storms will get and how quickly they will gain strength and who they might impact the most. But it also means that we have to build resilient societies because these storms will continue to happen. And even with early warning systems in place that are effective and reach those who need it the most, damage can still occur. And so it's important that we build strong infrastructure, like you mentioned, and increase resilience across these communities. Well, we know storms are just part of the new water system developing on a warmer planet. The WMO says the hydrological cycle is spinning out of balance. What does that mean? Right, so what we see with climate change in particular is that it's altering our water cycle as we know it. And this makes it really difficult to effectively um, monitor monitor, uh, water resources and manage them. So we need a better understanding of how these changes are happening and what we can continue to expect in the future. And again, this comes back to the importance of the science and research behind it in order to help us better understand these changes in the water cycle um, in order to better improve our hydrological planning. Of all the continents, Africa has the lowest greenhouse gas emissions per person. The average African emits about one ton of CO2 a year, compared to about seven tons for each European and ten tons for North Americans. The World Meteorological Organization is reaching out to include Africans. Tell us about your recent programs there. Of course, I'm actually in Africa right now. I'm in Rwanda for the World Climate Research Program's um, Open Science Conference, which is a once-in-a-decade climate conference that has brought together climate researchers and also weather researchers and social scientists and early career scientists as well, and has brought us all together here in Rwanda to talk about how we can advance climate science to help society. And we actually have about a third of the participants here are from Africa. And so we really want to engage them because they have so much expertise not only in these sciences, but they know Africa best, and that local information is absolutely crucial to bring into the the climate and weather science to make sure it is effective for different populations. Last September, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the world was going from global warming to global boiling, as we're heading now. He was talking about the 2022 report from a group called United in Science, 
Who is that, and why was this coalition formed? Right, so United in Science, um, it started about five years ago uh, under the direction of the UN Secretary General, and WMO spearheads this report every year, and the idea behind it was to bring together different UN organizations and other international organizations working on weather and climate and write up a report that summarizes some of the latest climate findings. And so we just released the latest United in Science report for 2023, and this year we did a different approach. We started the report with a state of the science where we summarized those latest scientific findings, and then we explored how weather, water, and climate science help support sustainable development because 2023 is a really important year. It's the halfway point to achieving the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals. Right, and right after this report, the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals Summit was held in New York, and the game plan has big targets to reach less than seven years away, but apparently only 15% of those goals are on track to happen. Can you talk to us about that? That's right. We are not on track to achieve the SDGs by 2030, and now is the time to really redouble our efforts um, in order to achieve the 2030 Agenda and the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And this summit that you mentioned in New York just last month was a really good opportunity to bring together different stakeholders and think about what we can do to increase ambition and really uh, scale up the work that we're doing to achieve these goals. And this report helped uh, to support that because it really highlights the crucial role that weather, water, and climate science play in achieving sustainable development and how we can elevate that in the coming years to make even more progress. Well, it's going to be tough because billions of people want food, safety, clean water, health care, and a better life that they don't have right now. And somehow that development has to happen without a great big burst of fossil fuels during a period of climate instability and, and ongoing crisis. It's a tough ask. It is. It's really difficult. But the thing is, the sustainable development goals and also our climate goals, they have to be tackled together because they are so deeply interlinked. Of course, Sustainable development is greatly impacted by climate change and extreme weather events. But on the flip side, climate change, you know, we can't achieve climate change without sustainable development, with, you know, low emissions, green energy. If we don't develop sustainably, we also won't achieve our Paris Agreement goals. Well, as we mentioned earlier, scientific circles are buzzing. Why did land and sea temperatures spike up so high now at the very start of the El Nino event instead of in 2024 when it might have been more expected? And we hear guesses from experts naming a half dozen factors. The answers are really important to know. Did we pass a tipping point or have we triggered something? Is the WMO looking into this? This is, of course, something we are looking into. Um, It's hard to know at this point. These records were broken just a couple of months ago, and it takes some time to really go through the data and better understand what exactly happened. But I think we can expect to continue to see increasing temperatures, particularly with El Nino here. And I think 2024, uh, it could continue to get even warmer. But we are definitely looking into this. I want to pass on a little worrying news for listeners. The United Nations University has a think tank called the Institute for Environment and Human Security. It's in Bonn, Germany. On October 25th, they released their 2023 report called Interconnected Disaster Risks. 
It warns we approach tipping points that could, quote, destroy the very systems our life depends on, end quote. At the same time, a group of elite scientists released their report titled The 2023 State of the Climate Report Entering Uncharted Territory. People are calling on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to do a hurry-up report on tipping points and existential risk. Do you feel that same kind of intensity at the UN's top weather body? I see a lot of interest across the uh, weather and climate scientific community in increasing research on tipping points because there's a real need to better understand what exactly these tipping points are and when we might cross those thresholds and actually see these tipping points take place. So here in Kigali at this World Climate Research um, Program conference, we've seen a lot of uh, scientists talking about the need to increase research on this very topic. When I started reporting on climate change in the 1990s, TV meteorologists did not mention climate change, and some denied global warming. Now the WMO is a leading voice warning about climate change, calling for faster action. What do you think brought about that transition between the two communities of the, of the weather watchers and the climate watchers? I mean, I think at this point it's just undeniable that climate change is here, it is happening, and we can actually feel the impacts ourselves. And I think this summer was a perfect example uh, during these heat waves. People really felt it. And so I think at this point people are, are coming around to, to this idea and realizing that we have to talk about it and we have to find solutions. And I think by far a majority of people are on board and ready to take action. And your own fascination with weather began at age four. Lauren, what moved you from weather research into the international climate arena? You know, I just, I love playing more of a facilitation and coordination role. And I think it's, it's really cool to bring so many scientists together into a space and enable them to collaborate. And I think the UN plays a really unique role in doing that. Um, it's not for everyone. Uh, not all meteorologists or scientists would, you know, enjoy the work that the UN does. It's a really special skill set, I think. But for those who enjoy that kind of thing, I, I just think it's really, really cool. Well, and you may be in a position to get the big picture, which the rest of us are trying to assemble from the little pieces. Exactly. It allows me to think about, you know, not only the science behind weather and climate, but what it means in the context of international policy, in the context of the Paris Agreement, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And it allows me to think about how that science actually translates into impacting the lives and livelihoods of people across the world. So it's a really unique position to be in, sitting at the UN as a scientist and engaging in all of these different spaces. But I've really enjoyed it so far. It looks like we have left the normal behind. Can we talk about weather anymore without bringing in climate change? I think these days um, these conversations often kind of blur together, um, but there is a lot of research being done, you know, on how do we attribute specific weather events to climate change. This is another uh, rapidly developing field of research and we are getting better and better at it. And these days, we can actually, for many events, very quickly identify the role that climate change played in that event to, to some extent. There is, of course, still uncertainty involved as well. But, yeah, we are seeing that climate change is, is playing a role in a lot of these weather events. But there is still natural variability as well. And so uh, these new techniques for attribution science are becoming increasingly important because 
across society, it's becoming increasingly important to understand how these events are impacted by climate change. Well, this may sound strange, but I think we can also reverse that conversation and say, uh, how is climate change being affected by extreme weather events? I mean, if you have a giant storm ripping the vegetation off the land, well, that changes how the land absorbs water or gives off water, and that can affect the climate slightly. And so it, it could be the two are playing with each other. Absolutely. You know, all of these systems are deeply interconnected. Our atmosphere has no boundaries, and we have to consider all these possible um, interactions, and, and it could go both ways. With Radio EcoShock, we have an audience of dedicated climate watchers and more than a few climate activists. How can we use the services of the WMO? Yeah, so we do have a lot of resources on our website um, for the World Meteorological Organization. We publish a lot of reports, um, particularly on United in Science, like I said, but also the state of the global climate, on water resources, and all of those are free and accessible to the public. Um, so in addition to the reports that we publish on a regular basis, um, WMO also works with national countries, and one thing that we promote is the free exchange of data. So this is really important for your everyday weather forecasting. The, the weather forecast on your phone depends on data. And without that data, it's much harder to forecast. And so WMO helps bring countries together and helps encourage them to share that data. And that ultimately helps all of us um, and gives us access to better weather forecasts on a daily basis. What is coming up in your work, Lauren Stewart, and what can we expect from the WMO? So in a couple of months, or I guess in December, we've got the 28th Conference of the Parties, um, which will be taking place in Dubai. And so WMO will be present there, and we will be uh, doing several events on the state of the climate. We'll be releasing a new report on that. We've also got a new report coming up on the state of climate in the context of health which is a really crucial and important topic these days, and that comes out quite soon. Um, of course, we also are focusing a lot these days on early warnings for all, which is one of the big UN partnership initiatives. And the goal of this is to ensure that everyone on Earth has access to early warnings by the end of 2027. And this will save lives and livelihoods, and it will also reduce the losses and the damages that result from these storms and other extreme events, and it will also help safeguard the sustainable development gains that we are striving to achieve by 2030. So those are some big agenda items for us in the coming months and years. From the World Meteorological Organization, we've been speaking with Scientific Officer Lauren Stewart. You can find links to all the reports and news we just talked about in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Lauren, thank you for helping us out, looking at the big picture here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog. EcoShock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. EcoShock.org. The summer of 2023 was shocking, even to longtime climate alarmists. The heat, instant floods, wildfires the size of Europe, pretty well every record smashed. It was the hottest summer ever recorded, month after month. Almost too strange to believe. Extreme heat has not stopped even in November. Like vast clouds, patches of hotter air float around in both hemispheres. 
The heat in South America is so strange, nothing compares. Searing temperatures like 39 degrees C over 100 Fahrenheit crept up into cool mountain cities in the Andes. You heard Taylor Swift canceled a concert in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, after a fan died of heat. Last week, people there sweated through the hottest nighttime temperature ever recorded in South America. The following day was the hottest temperature at any time ever measured in that continent. With humidity, it felt like 158 degrees Fahrenheit, 70 degrees C. That is stunning, isn't it? What really threw me, at the very same time, it was T-shirt weather in Siberia, in the northern hemisphere, in the mid-60s Fahrenheit, 18 degrees C, in November. Russians were out in the heat instead of in the snow and frozen ground, as has always been known there. Satellite heat maps show a big red blare over eastern Siberia. That is unreal. We have entered science fiction-level warming. In science fiction, and in real science, pessimists predicted the global average temperature would warm 2 degrees C over pre-industrial by the year 2100. In November 2023, we got our first taste, 77 years early. For two days, planet Earth was two degrees hotter than before the fossil fuel bonanza. To be official, global average temperatures would remain at two degrees C for at least several years, if not ten years. We are not there, but it is starting. 1.5 is deader than a doornail, and anybody who understands the physics knows that. That is a shortcoming of our scientific community to not make clear to the political leaders what the situation is. In the next several months, we're going to go well above 1.5 C on a 12-month average. For the rest of this decade, the average is going to be at least 1.5. The scenarios that you would need to stay under 2 degrees are just not, they're imaginary. When I gave a TED talk more than a decade ago, Earth's energy imbalance was about six-tenths of a watt per square meter, which is equivalent to 400,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs per day. That imbalance has now doubled. That's why global warming will accelerate. One watt per meter squared is an enormous forcing to try to overcome. You want to do it by extracting CO2, it costs you more than $100 trillion. It's not going to happen. I showed a graph on the carbon intensity of energy. We've, we've reduced it from 0.8 to 0.7 in 50 years. It's not going to go to zero in a few decades. And there are no plans to do that. So heat is pouring into the planet at twice the rate. That is a principal reason why we're getting these extremely large month-after-month global temperatures. This is the correct physics, and it's the real world, and it takes it sometimes takes the community a while to catch on. So young people need to understand what they are being handed by the older generation. They can't allow fake stories to mislead them. As you heard from James Hansen and the World Meteorological Organization agrees, Earth is likely to experience a 12-month period 
of 1.5 degrees of heat for at least one year in the next five, and that's before 2030. Last week we learned the combination of fossil multinational companies and national producers are developing enough fossil fuels to create, as the Guardian newspaper put it, hellish three degrees C of climate heating. That harsh revelation came with the 2023 production gap report. Be sure to listen to my interview last week with Stuart Lazarus of the Stockholm Environment Institute. If you can face the reality, find a link in my show blog at ecoshock.org. So let's get a view from the German public broadcaster Deutsche Welle. This short report was broadcast November 20th, 2023. The United Nations has warned that Earth is on track to warm by almost three degrees by the end of the century. That's despite pledges from many countries to cut emissions. A new report from the UN's Environment Programme says current promises to mitigate global warming are no longer feasible or credible, highlighting how emissions have increased uh, increased again last year. It says drastic climate action is now needed to limit to climate change and its impacts around the world. Let's get more from climate reporter Tim Schauenberg, who joins us from Bonn in Western Germany. Welcome, Tim. Um, just tell us why the current climate action and promises aren't enough. Well, globally, investments in new oil and gas projects are actually increasing instead of falling. Emissions are increasing instead of falling. That leads us to be on track uh, to heat the planet by three degrees by the end of the century instead of limiting it to 1.5 degrees um, as the global community has pledged, which would have devastating effects on uh, humans, nature and our economies. Secondly, net zero targets globally cover only 80% of what is needed to reduce climate change to 1.5 degrees if fully implemented. And that is the problem. Most countries do not deliver on their pledges. They do not have roadmaps. They do not put these net zero pledges into law. They don't have an actual plan how to reach these targets, which leads the authors of the report Um, to the conclusion that as time is running out, those net zero targets are in many cases not feasible or at least unrealistic uh, and therefore not credible anymore. Just to give one number, um, to be on track with the 1.5 degrees uh, target, we would need to reduce uh, emissions by 42 percent by 2030 compared to what would be reached with current policies. If we keep emitting as we're doing it right now for the next couple of years, this budget will be exhausted and used up uh, quicker as we actually can afford. And that's why scientists uh, really point to the fact that a crucial that it's crucial to curb emissions drastically in this decade and not postpone climate action. Again, that strong warning from DW News is based on the UNEP 2023 production gap report. Links at ecoshock.org, including how to download the report for yourself. Seeing our natural environment, so full of species, rich in innovation and wonder, being stripped away by my own civilization, I began Radio Ecoshock in 2006. At first it was just on one station. Now it's over a hundred. In my view, we humans blew past the best chance and for a natural balance And it was at the Copenhagen Climate Meeting of 2009. In an ironic universe, the weather outside the conference halls then was brutally cold in that Danish December. 
tens of thousands of climate activists and concerned citizens stood shivering outside the hallways, locked out, calling for salvation from the coming heat, the storms, the high seas, and that was a hinge moment of failure. Desperate hope returned in 2015 when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. Pretty well no government in the world came even close to living up to the weak promises they made there. Instead, humans expanded fossil fuel burning more and more each year. Now the time of warning is over. The future has arrived. Now it is coming down to choices about survival. Can we get off these fossil drugs? Can we unite to avoid a worse hell arriving? I'll stick around as long as I am able, trying to find out. I hope you will too. I'm Alex. Thank you for listening and still caring about this world and all the creatures in it. <laughs>